We are going through a new series, not a long series, four weeks, and we're calling it Running the Race. And we're going over the mission and vision of Mountain View Fellowship, which is important, especially as we have launched a new campus of Mountain View Fellowship here in Camas. And this series we taught once before, about eight years ago, when we first launched the Heber campus. And the reason we do this is because we want to get everybody on the same page as to why Mountain View Fellowship has the, the mission and vision that it has. And so that everyone who calls Mountain View Fellowship their home can say, yeah, I agree with that mission. And last week, in our, it's called Running the Race. And last week we talked about how running the race of our mission of Mountain View Fellowship is not a sprint race. It's a marathon. It's not a, it's not a short-term, flash-pan mission. We don't plan on being here and making a whole lot of noise for a short amount of time and then getting out. We want to be here. We want to make a long-lasting impression in our community for Jesus Christ. We want to make sure that, we'll, that the, the preparation we take into this race called life and this race called being God's church, that we do it well. And this week we're approaching the first of our C's. See, Mountain View Fellowship's mission is connect, coach, and challenge. And this is not a mission that we came by carelessly or quickly. It was something that was thought and prayed about a lot. And so the first C in that, I'm going to do this backwards. Is that a capital C or am I backwards? I'm not good? Nice. Nice. Usually I'm backwards because this is a C to me. Capital C, big connect. And today we're going to discuss how important it is as a church that we understand why the first step in our mission is connection and connecting to one another and how important that is when it comes to running the race. How we connect together as a team will often determine how we finish the race. See, kind of borrowing from the sprint marathon illustration of last week, in a sprint, you have a very specific lane you need to stay in. In a sprint, if you don't get off the blocks just perfectly, you're not going to win that race. Every move you make in a sprint matters because it's such a short run. But see, in a marathon, how many of you have ever ran a marathon? As I say that, I'm going to put my hand down because I have not. <laughs> really, nobody. Uh, uh, half hand, I like that. Okay. A half marathon. Half marathon, <laughs> all right. <laughs> see, in a marathon, I'm sure we've all seen it. Now that Facebook's around, everybody does the different run. I did like a, a walk for cystic fibrosis yesterday. Woo. I am not going to call that a run. <laughs> I walked, that's what it's for. Uh, but, it, but if you've ever seen a marathon, there's no real lanes. It's kind of a big jumble of people. And Paul's reference to the running is a running for like an Olympic running. And if you've ever seen the Olympic torch, somebody's running with the torch. And then what happens when they get to the end of their ability? They pass the torch on to somebody else. And a marathon is more of a group mentality. And if you come short, somebody else could be strong in your place and you could still win the race. You could still do very well. And last week we, we talked about the, pri uh, the, the prize of the race or what we were running for was not ambiguous or relative to the Apostle Paul. In his passage, he made it really clear that he was running for people's souls. That's what he was running for. That's what he was training for. The prize wasn't ambiguous. It wasn't relative. It wasn't whatever. The prize was real human beings. And he was going to train to do whatever he could to reach people for Jesus Christ. And today we're going to talk about how important it is to connect with the team. So I want you to open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, it's at the 
um, towards the end of your Bibles. And as you're turning there, the chapter just before Hebrews 12 is what we call, you might know, know it as the, the Hall of Faith or the Faith chapter. This is where we get a, a strong definition of what it means to have faith. We call it the Hall of Faith because in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews goes through and talks about some of the people we remember and look to who lived a life of faith. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Moses. He talks about David, among other people, saying, look to these people and remember what their walk of faith was. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, he turns the, 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 the topic back over to us. And so read this with me, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so e easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the, the writer of Hebrews uh, we believe, most people believe it's to be Paul. We don't actually know specifically, but it feels like Paul. It sounds like something Paul would write. But it's pulling on that same idea from last week of, of looking at the Christian life as a race, looking at the, the athletic side. And in this one, he says, don't forget about the great cloud of witnesses that are surrounding you. Now, specifically, the author of Hebrews is saying, remember those who came before you. Remember the walk that they walked in faith. And don't forget this huge cloud of people that came before you. But also when it comes to connecting to a team, it means remembering the team that is also surrounding you right now. Remembering who is running this race with you. And then something unique to us in the New Testament, considering none of us are old enough to be in the Old Testament, we also have the race of the Holy Spirit. We get to be connected, interconnected supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. See, today we live, and this is going to be your first blank in your notes. We live in a time where we have to fight the cultural tide of our world. Especially when it comes to the, the idea of being connected in relationships. We, there's there's, a, there's a, a cultural idea and identity and message is being sent to us. But it doesn't always agree with what we are taught to believe by Jesus and scripturally. We need to fight the cultural message. See, when it comes to being connected to one another, um, what I've learned, and I'm sure you would agree, is everybody wants to know other people. We all want to know people around us. We want to know people's names. We want to know them. But there's something inside the human soul that doesn't just want to know others, but we also want to genuinely be known. We don't just want to know a ton of people. We want to intimately be able to know and be known by others. I'm going to totally date myself, but there's no other show that can encompass this. But how many of you have seen Cheers? <laughs> when you think of Cheers, what's the melody that immediately starts going through your head? Sing it, Mandy. <laughs> Thank you. We want to go where everybody knows our name, and they're always glad you came. Now, there's something... I'm dating myself only because I don't know of another show that can have that kind. No, no other show has that simple of a message. Yes, it takes place in a bar. If you've seen it, not everybody in it is intoxicated at all times, but it follows a group of people that every single night they go to the same place where people know them. 
It's not a huge bar, but it's just a place where they can go and somebody knows their name. Somebody knows them. They don't have to pick up and start over again every single night. And there's something inside of our hearts that's appealed to, that we, we, we long for that. We long to go somewhere where we don't have to start over. We long to go somewhere where people know us. But see, in our culture today, we're moving further and further away from being a people that's known. From being a people that is known well by other people. Um, this past week, uh, Pastor Shane and a whole bunch of church planters from around Utah came together. Um, and they, they do this thing called a church planting summit. Uh, they call it Loving Utah because they couldn't think of a better name. And they knew it was lame, but they didn't care because it communicates itself. And uh, they come together every once in a while. I've been able to go to a couple of them. And uh, this past week, they had uh, a professor from BYU named uh, Dr. Brent Slife. And Dr. Brent Slife is actually, he's been a, he's the, the director of the psychology department at BYU, author of many books, been at BYU, I want to say, for 25 years. He's an evangelical Christian. He's, he's, the, he's also the, the head of the board at Center Point Church down in Orem. He's kind of an anomaly. He says, there's not many like me, but they hired me 25 years ago, and I just keep on getting advanced. Uh, brilliant man, but he came and shared, and I remember they, they, they kind of introduced him, and I said, okay, so they're going to have the, the director of psychology at BYU share with us at a church planting summit. And um, even though like the message was largely built before this happened on Thursday, he gave some incredible insight into what we're talking about today. His message, what he shared with us, <coughs> was a new cultural shift that the world has been going down for some time, but it's getting much worse. And when I talk about fighting the cultural tide, he called it fighting this, this battle that we've been creating and, and feeding into. And he calls this battle... I'm going to use his term, and then I'm going to try and unpack it. So if it totally goes over your head, that's A-okay. It did mine too. But he, it's this thing that psychologists call liberal individualism. Liberal individualism. I had never heard that term before, but I guess this term is becoming fairly known among psychotherapists and psychologists. Now here's the thing. from Depending on your worldview, liberal individualism is, is either, yes, I love it, or... We need to be careful because liberal individualism is this idea that and it has nothing to do with politics. I need to say that up front just because I use the word liberal. They didn't steal that word. Okay, Liberal just means free from boundaries. Individualism means what makes me happy, what makes me satisfied. So we live in a world where people constantly seek out happiness and satisfaction and they will make sure that nothing stands in their way to achieving it. Now, this is not a Christian perspective. This man is a Christian. This is a psychology a perspective from, from a psychotherapist. With over two decades of experience and lots of books, he says this is a problem, not just from the Christian perspective, but from the world perspective. He said what should be happening is a thing that the therapists, they call it, Strong relationality, which means the ability to have strong relationships. And when he first said that, I said, well, wait a minute. So liberal individualism is being compared to strong relationality. Couldn't the two just kind of go together? Couldn't Mike Smith pursue whatever it takes to be happy? The American dream. No boundaries. Don't let anybody put a boundary around me being happy. 
and also have strong relationships? And he said, theoretically, yes. Scientifically, no. Because liberal individuality is going to trump the ability to have strong relationships. And I want to show you why and why this is a cultural thing. He explained it in three different ways. The first way he said is when it comes to um, liberal individuality, he said the first thing that happens, one of the first phases that you see in people is they're more committed to themselves than committed to anything else. As a Christian, it means they're more committed to themselves than they're committed to God. Which means in the end, I'm always going to choose what's going to make me happy. And then you say, well, what about right and wrong? What if what makes you happy is wrong? Well, according to liberal individualism, there really isn't a right and wrong. If it makes you happy, in a way, it's right. Uh-oh. We won't go any further down that road. If it makes you happy, it can't completely be wrong. Well, now we have a whole culture, a world, where people are so committed to their own satisfaction and self that they're willing to do whatever it takes to hurt other people. They won't let anything get in their way because I am free to pursue my own joy. The second thing he said, and I'll explain in a minute where we're at in the culture because of this. The second one is called instrumentalism. That's what psychologists call it. It means instead of having strong relationships, we use other people to get our end. Which means you are using other people as an instrument for you to reach your end. Why do a lot of marriages in America fail? Because of instrumentalism. Because we've been raised in a culture where we look at our spouse as a means to an end. As an instrument to my own happiness. And when she stops, or he stops, making me happy, well then that instrument is no longer pertinent in my life, and I can discard it. Do you see now why like strong relationships and liberal individualism, how, the, how from a psychological standpoint, they're starting to see that they don't coincide very well. The third one was an unhealthy independence. This goes back to the founding of our nation. We want to be free of any boundaries. But the truth is, as human beings, we're created for a certain level of dependency on one another. I'm going to unpack these a little bit more, but I want to show you, I went ahead and did some research, because I love you, wanted some facts, okay? I went ahead and did some research, um, spurred on a little bit by Dr. Slife's uh, um, message that he had shared. But I went ahead and did some, a little bit of research. He had shared some things that really caught my attention, and I said, i got to see if this is true. <clears throat> this is part of what happens and why we have to fight the cultural mandate when it comes to our relationships. We have to fight that cultural tie. Because they have found that this type of living, well, like I said, we're calling it liberal individualism, don't let anything get in the way of my own happiness. This is how it works when it comes to relationships. Today in America, isolation and chronic loneliness are greater than they've ever been. And some of you go, loneliness, what is that? Okay, thank you for asking. Let's dig in. Everything I share right now is not from an evangelical Christian standpoint. This is from a, a psychological and scientific standpoint. So if you, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. I mean, what have facts ever proven, right? That was a joke. They should prove stuff. <laughs> they have found right now that because of our desire to become personally satisfied, 
liberal individualism, that we are now, America is the loneliest and most isolated it's ever been. And here are some things that have happened because of this isolation. Here's some, like, so first off, solitary living. In the 1950s, less than 10% of American households had only one person living there, a single occupant. It was rare, one out of 10. Today, over 30% of households only have one person in them, where it has become normal to live alone. It's not too difficult to wonder why people want to live alone because having a relationship with someone else throws in the possibility of me not getting my own way. Uh-oh, and I'm not even talking about marriage. If you have roommates, you're like, wait a minute, this is not how I dreamed it. We have to share things? It gets in the way. The second one is we have lost our need for confidence. Confidant is something somebody you can share with. Somebody is somebody who, a friend that you actually share life with. I'm going to give you a couple numbers. In, in, uh, I don't want to get them wrong. In the late 1940s, America had 2,500 clinical psychologists, 30,000 social workers, and fewer than 500 marriage and family therapists. In 2010, America had 77,000 clinical psychologists, up from 2,500, 192,000 clinical social workers, up from 30,000, 400,000 non-clinical social workers, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, up from 500, and 105 mental health counselors and 30,000 life coaches. And this, this does not even, like this is not the tens of thousands of substance abuse counselors. These are just regular clinical. And then, and then here's the funny part about that though. The majority of the patients that therapists see today do not have a psychiatric diagnosis, which means they don't actually have a condition. Most people today see therapists over what therapists refer to as regular problems. Regular problems, meaning it, it's not diagnosed, it's just life. I mean, nowadays, if you see a movie, Somebody who's successful in most movies and TV shows, they'll often throw in a little plot line where they have to go see their therapist three times a week. <laughs> and you're like, you're married. You have a best friend. But they still have to leave the house to go talk to the therapist. And therapists today are saying, most of these people don't have to come see me, but they need to share. I'll charge them $150 an hour to talk. <laughs> See, therapists now are saying the problem isn't that people need therapy. The problem is they have nobody to talk to. And this does not like, mitigate or minimize the problems that people are going through. Some of the stuff we go through in life is huge. But up to a certain, up to 50 years ago, those huge things we went through, we shared with our friends. We shared with our family. We had people who we would come over to our house and we would weep and cry together. And we would share life with them. But because of this general graduate graduated move towards individualization, we stopped sharing with one another. Now we're sharing with therapists what we should be sharing with friends. And that's coming from a therapist's mouth. He's saying that many of the people that come and sit in my office, they could have had that conversation with a friend, but they don't have any. <clears throat> we need relationships, so we're paying for relationships. Does that make sense? And then... Um, there's a book called Alone Together. It's easy to talk about isolation and loneliness in the context of, you know, we live in the mountains. 
it very actually is, it's a real possibility that you could be alone a lot. But for, for many of us, we're not actually alone. We are with people all the time. But in the midst of being with those people, we become alone in the middle of it. Social media has not helped this with us. Facebook, I'm a full, I love Facebook. It can be a good tool, and it could be a bad tool, just like a gun, just like a knife. It's not inherently evil. But see, what Facebook and Twitter and Instagram have done is they've created a culture, especially my generation, where when we used to talk to each other, we now talk at each other. And, and when we used to actually have to have dialogue, now just go to your phones. How many of you don't answer phone calls, you just text? You're like, I'm, in, I'm, I'm with you. I'm busy. I'll be straight up. I let a lot of phone calls go to voicemail because I'm, the, the hope is I'm usually with somebody else and I don't like to interrupt when I'm with somebody else. But how many of you have had a text message misinterpreted before? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> or someone's mad at you and you found out they've been mad at you for a month and you finally go, what happened? And they're like, well, look at this text you sent me. And I go, uh-huh. It says I'll be late for dinner. But it's how you said it. <laughs> okay. See, we, we, we don't talk to each other anymore. We've become a culture that talks at each other. And it adds to the loneliness. Um, about 20 years ago, 80s and 90s, most of you are familiar with this because it, it radically changed how we deal with the development of children. But in the 80s and 90s, Romania, the government fell, and hundreds of thousands of children were placed in government institutions. And people were going and visiting these children, and at what they found was these children who were raised in these government institutions with very little human affection were actually like developmentally challenged. And they weren't genetically developmentally challenged, they were just developmentally challenged. They were, they were not operating at the level they should have been operating at. And I, and I say that because most people have heard, heard this. It, it, it kind of changed how we deal with the development of children. Um, it, it, this, in the 80s and 90s, introduced this new concept called neglect, where a parent can neglect a child, and no longer is it like a moral thing, like, you're bad, you neglected. Now it's a legal thing. You neglect a, a baby, you'll get your baby taken from you. You can go to jail. My wife and I are foster parents, and we fostered a child for a year, that wasn't with us because of any sort of verbal or physical or sexual abuse. She was just neglected. Because we have found scientifically that the human, in its developmental stages of life, has to have some form of affection and attention and love to actually develop health in a healthy way. Um, the main scientist or, or psychologist who was studying this, he said that these children that weren't, um, they saw very little affection... They couldn't figure out what was wrong with them, but it seemed like a lot of them suffered from them. So we started doing these EEGs on their brains, which is uh, like setting the, uh, uh, somebody help me, like the electro, the, electro, the electric currents of the brain. Am I right? Doctors, where you at? All I know is it's an EEG. And they started finding that there was something significantly wrong with a lot of these children in, this, in, in these orphanages, in these institutions. He said, kind of so that I could, somebody like me could understand, he said, imagine that a child is a 100-watt light bulb. He said, the children that we've been studying who have not had affection and care and love and interaction with other humans, who have been in a, in a, in a cage or in a crib nonstop, their, 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 their brains are showing they're more like a 40-watt light bulb. Because of this, these findings, 
A child now, a child, a, develop, a developing child, you can, can suffer from neglect, which actually messes with the wiring of the child's brain. We have fully accepted this as a society. Now you can go to jail for neglect. You'll lose your child if you neglect them during their growing years. But here's what we don't recognize. See, see we, I think we would all agree with that. Nobody would go, no, Mike, you can leave your kid and, and neglect them and they'll turn out fine. Nobody would say that because nothing, there's no evidence in the contrary. But what we don't often recognize, which is what we need to fight the culture on, is that kind of affection and relationship and, and need to be known and know other people did not stop when we were in the early developmental years of childhood, but continues throughout this, the course of our whole life. There's never a time in our life when you were at a healthy, healthy developmental stage to have no relationships, ever. In fact, I'm not going to read the whole article, but AARP, um, which if you're older, you know what that is. If you're younger, you'll find out. <laughs> AARP actually released some studies about how they're trying to change the way a lot of um, nursing home and assisted living communities are operating because they're finding that loneliness and, and isolation has a very distinct effect on a human being's physical health. It's no longer just being bummed out. And it's no longer something that could be healed with a pill. People's isolation and, and the loneliness actually has a physical effect. See, I love this kind of stuff because I read that in the Bible 10 years ago. And now science is going, yeah, yeah, we need each other. <laughs> We're not making it up. We need each other. I want to read you um, last scientific fact, and then we'll get back to the Bible, I promise. Don't be mad at me. A gentleman by the name of John, um, I'm going to totally butcher his last name, Kakiopo. I like that. We're going to call him John Kakiopo. He is the director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. And he wrote a book, he's the leading expert on what they're calling now an epidemic of loneliness. And, and he, he kind of wrote down what some of the actual physiological problems that are happening from our culture of loneliness. He says that they were drawing blood from people who had confessed to be suffering from chronic loneliness, generally lonely, isolated people. And they said that the deepest recesses of the cell was being altered in these people, which means their DNA was actually being altered because of what we think is just a mental thing, just to get over it, you're bummed out, go hang out with people. He's saying that loneliness, and this is not a Christian author, this is a, 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 a doctor at a university, and he's saying, no, this, this goes much deeper. He went on to say, when you're lonely, your whole body is lonely. Loneliness will suppress your immune system, making you sick. It will increase the risk of infection, elevate your blood pressure. Lonely people are at an increased risk of stroke and cardiovascular disease, comparable to chronic high blood pressure, obesity, and smoking. He said the effects of social isolation or rejection and loneliness are as real to a human being as thirst, hunger, or pain. Do you see why it's a problem? It's because we turn ahead to this and we go, no, it's okay. Be independent. Be on your own. You know, I think there's this idea in life that we all need to be like Rambo with the teeth. 
between our, between, or a knife between our teeth, just parachuting into the jungle ready to take life on. And it, and it couldn't be more further from the truth. We need each other. And I just shared with you some clinical, scientific research of why you need each other. It's, not a, it's, it's, not, it's no matter opinion, and it's no longer the guy in front with the Bible saying, just trust me, science is going to catch up one day. You need each other. No, you, it, science caught up. And science is now agreeing with what we've been saying for a long time. We are not okay alone. And we're not okay in a society where we only have little tiny bits of interaction with one another. One, one author, I think it was that same guy, John with the weird last name, he said that at one time in history, it was normal for a human being to have long gulps of relationship. But today in 2016, we have little tiny sips of relationship here and there. And we, but we pretend that we're not thirsty. We need each other. What I want to do is I want to show you um, a few things that kind of go back. We're returning back to our, our mission statement. We're returning back to why we do what we do. And I want to try and kind of undo and explain a little bit of this liberal individualism and how we still live it today. And I want to show you some passages. A lot of them is just a whole big... Consider yourself like shotgun blast from the Apostle Paul's writings. He brings up community all the time. And we're just going to take little bits and pieces from him talking about community so we can recognize that this was a big thing for him. We are not good alone. The first concept is a concept called interdependence. In your notes, it says the importance of interdependence. Um, Romans 6, 3 through 16 is, is the end of the Roman letter from Paul. And I think some of us, because Paul wrote so much, and we know, if you have any biblical knowledge, you know he did a whole bunch of missionary journeys. I think some of us see Paul as that Rambo with the knife between his teeth parachuting in. In this passage right here, Paul names 29 people. He says, make sure you say hi to them. Make sure you say hi to them. This person served with me. This person was in jail with me. This one encouraged me. He named 29 people in this little passage. <laughs> See, Paul, in this letter to Rome, he was letting the Christians in Rome know that he's not doing this alone. And see, in our vocabulary, most of us have the word independence, and we have the word dependence. See, there is such a thing as unhealthy dependence, and there's such a thing as unhealthy independence. Unhealthy dependence is, well, the millennials, and then moving forward, <laughs> unhealthy dependence means I don't need to branch out because you're going to do it for me. See, there's, there is such a thing as unhealthy dependence. There is such a thing as I'm relying too much on somebody else's strength so that I never have to flex. But then our cultures also, we're trying so hard to break this culture of dependence that we're, we're shouting from the rooftops to be independent, but now we're creating an unhealthy independence where people are not letting others into their lives, where people are, they are keeping everybody at a distance, all conversations are shallow. If something needs to go deep, you pay the guy 150 an hour and he'll let you go deep. But we keep everybody at a distance. See, there's this word called interdependence. I don't know who coined it, but it became really popular in Stephen Covey's book, The Seven of Effective People. And uh, I don't remember. So, but he, he uses this word called interdependence. I love this word. If you've ever heard me talk about the puzzle piece when, regarding the church, the puzzle piece is interdependence. It means that we mutually stand on our own, but we also need each other. 
We are not leeching off of each other, but we also can't do this on our own. Independence all by itself says that you have everything you need to fully succeed by yourself in life. The problem with that is the Bible. We are not five-star players, and we need each other. And see, that I use a puzzle piece because a puzzle piece has parts that go in, and a puzzle piece has parts that go out. And sometimes if we don't look at our puzzle as part of the giant image, we get so focused on our one puzzle piece that we, man, we just get infatuated with it. And we, we love our weaknesses, and we love our strengths, and we feel like we can do it all. But if you take a piece from a jigsaw puzzle, you can analyze it all day, and you're going to be like, there's still nothing there. Like, I get that like it could help. But by itself, there's not much there. Because as a church, as a people, we are meant to be connected to one another. My strengths are supposed to help you in your weaknesses. Your strengths are supposed to help me in my weaknesses. When I'm struggling, I need people around me to lift me. And if I am completely independent, I can't have that. See, we need to recognize when it comes to being connected as a church family, how important it is that we embrace being interdependent with one another. The next one is unity versus uniformity. Unity versus uniformity. There's a a stereotype with the church that everybody needs to look and act and do the same thing. And anybody who doesn't fit that stereotype, whatever it is, is falling short. See, we believe in unity, but we do not believe in uniformity. In fact, we believe the church is supposed to be diverse, both with skills and gifts and, and, and what we bring to the table. We are not all supposed to be the same. I learned, it, when I was in the Navy, I learned that you can't just sit down and teach people unity. Like, hey, we're going to learn unity today. Open up your books to page 7. You can't teach somebody unity. Unity is by definition when we are all pursuing the same goal. You'll have unity. In our scripture for today in Hebrews, it says at the end of Hebrews chapter, it's Hebrews 12 too, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, when it comes to being unified, when we all agree to make the aim of what we're doing, Jesus Christ, we'll have unity. When that aim becomes something different, when we all are aiming our bows at a different target, we will have this unity. See, this falls in the face of what the liberal individualism, commitment to self above all. If I'm committed to myself above all things, I will never have unity with people around me. I will always have division. Because at the end of the day, my arrow is pointing to me. I'm the target. And good luck getting other people. And then you're in a cult. In a cult, they're pretty good at being like, I'm the target. Everybody aim at me. Let's have unity. I'm the best. Uh, But in in the real world, when every single person says, I'm the most important, good luck having other people getting behind that vision. See, our, our target is a commitment to God. Our target is Jesus Christ. And we will have unity as a team in that. And that's where we'll find an absence of the division that comes so apparent in so many churches. And then uh, we'll, close up, we'll close here. There's still a lot of blanks. Don't worry, we're going to fill them. But we call this next one, One Another Living. One Another Living. 
Um, this is kind of a play on words that Shane created. We're going to talk about what it means to live one another. But this falls in the face of one of the, the problems with the liberal individualism is rather than living and serving people sacrificially in love, we use other people as instruments, even in the church. We say, how can I use him as a tool to get my end? How can I use her as an instrument to get what I want? But see, biblical Christianity says, how do I lay down my life for him? How do I help her get what she's trying to get? How do I lose so that they can win? And that's called one another living. The first one is, care for one another and be unified. I'm going to throw some, some scripture at you. First Corinthians 12.25 says, So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. The next one is serve one another. Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. Next one is bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Forgive and love one another. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. I told you you're going to be shot with the shotgun blast of Paul's writings. It's just all, a whole bunch of passages from all over. Next one is submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. And then the last one. Pray for one another. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If you weren't able to get all those, I'll give them to you after. I wanted to kind of, we got to get through those. But those are our one another living. That's kind of our checklist of what it means to serve sacrificially. If we are choosing to be that in the community you are proving that you are not willing to use other people as an instrument to get your end. But as a church, we are all aiming at the same target. And we do that by loving each other. Um, one of the reasons this is one of our, our mission statements as a church is we believe fundamentally, we believe science backs it up, and our own experiences continue to validate this truth. We are better together. We need real relationships in our lives. Sunday mornings here will never, ever, ever be enough. Now, don't get me wrong. Coming together as a community to worship on Sundays is absolutely vital to who we are. But it's never going to be enough. You know, I bring up cheers because at cheers you go a place where everybody's going to know your name. Folks, I tell you pretty quickly, if we're not already there, you're not going to be able to come into this room or into a regular church where everybody's going to know you where you're going to be able to right away know that everybody in this environment doesn't just know who I am, but they know me. But we have to find places in our lives where we're making 
paying the price, making the priority to be known by other people. Where we are having the opportunity to share in life and in our struggles. Where we are having the opportunity to let people mourn with us and cry with us and celebrate with us. Do you have somebody that you can call at any time and know that they're going to listen to you? Do you have a couple people that you know you can call? Last week we talked about having too much on our plates and we need to often go back to our priorities and reprioritize our life. Do you have people in your life that you have made a priority no matter what? I have a handful of people in my life that I believe I could call at any moment of any day and I would have an ear. Do you have people that you consider, not acquaintances, but deep friends, that before you would call a therapist, you know that they would listen to you? Do you have people that you know that in your weaknesses, they're not going to condemn you, that they're going to lovingly correct you? Do you have people in your life that are going to say no when you wanted to hear yes? See, I think some people think accountability, like accountability partner, is, hey, I sinned this week, and they're like, yeah, me too. Let's go get a pizza. <laughs> but you know what? Real accountability, a real partner in life is somebody who's going to say, hey, I noticed this, and I love you. We've got to do something about this. Do you have somebody that you let speak into your life that way? That you don't immediately get offended and unfriend them on Facebook and start telling other people some really justified biblical reason why you can't be friends? Or do you just accept it and say, man, I'm so glad I have somebody who's willing to speak into my life. I have three guys, two guys, I'm one of the three. I had a friend two years ago who said, hey, Mike, I'd like to get together with you regularly because I need it. And I went, okay. Kind of like a discipleship group. And he was like, kind of. And so we started getting together. He calls it the power of three. <laughs> because we lift each other up. And we make it a priority every single week. Now we have to miss weeks because of life. But we never go more than two weeks getting together. And then after a time, we invited a third person to join that group. After praying about it and considering the character of this person, we said, what does he bring to the table? Because we see it as an interdependence. If we're all the same person and we're uniformity in our group, we're not learning from each other. We're different people coming together. And they have been, over the last two years, some of the biggest encouragement I've ever had in my life. Because they'll call me on my crap. You can say crap in church now. <laughs> they call me on my pride. They encourage me. I have people that I can go to at any... I can call them at any point, and I know they're going to listen to me. And I know that I would never have to go pay somebody for a conversation before I have somebody. Church, we need each other. If you haven't found a way to connect to people... If you haven't found a way, whether it's through a community group, or through a women's study, or through we're going to golf every Friday morning and talk, if you haven't found a way to connect with each other, you have to make it a priority. <clears throat> this Jesus thing does not work without a community. 